0: From Religion to Revelation. That's the title of my message today. From Religion to Revelation. Now we've heard it said that it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. But we don't really understand what a relationship really is. Having a relationship with another human being is simply about sitting and talking and sharing and conversing. And we can actually get too familiar with God when we think in terms of our relationship with God the way we have a good relationship with another human being. That is, relationships in the natural bring a sense of familiarity. I can just go kick it with you. We can shoot pool and shoot the breeze. But God is not one to kick it with. Because once you lose your reverence for Him, you lose your revelation of Him. Familiarity breeds contempt. See, when we get familiar with friends, we find we can say whatever we feel like saying to them, you know, because we know they understand us. And when we start getting so lax in our relationship with God that we think we can just say, and there's a very popular teaching in the body of Christ that says God is big enough to handle it. You can cuss him out and call him any names you want to call him. He can handle it. He still loves you. Yeah, he can handle it. He is big enough and he still, still does love you, but it's not relationally helpful. I mean, you know, it could get you zapped. The fact of the matter is you don't know him well if you don't have reverence for him. When you lose your reverence for him, it's not a sign that you're relationally close to him. It's a sign that your relationship is over or that there's relational distance between you and him. But the closer you come to him, the more your reverence increases. It's not about religion. It's about revelation, and revelation is the unveiling of God Whenever God unveils Himself and reveals Himself to you, the natural result is not familiarity, but reverence. That's what happened when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of His robe filling the temple. He didn't say, cool, let's kick it. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. That's what happened to John on the island of Patmos when he said, I heard a voice behind me like the sound of a trumpet. And when I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, I saw one like a son of man standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. He wore a robe down to his feet with a golden sash across his chest. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell on my face like a dead man. That's what revelation does, is it puts you to death and it causes you to fall. On your face before the reverence and majesty that is God and cry out. That's what revelation does. It's not about relationship the way we understand relationship, it's about revelation, and revelation always deepens our reverence. But there's been a lot of talk about revelation in the body of Christ, so much talk about it, that revelation has become a concept that's completely unfamiliar to us. We've completely lost the biblical concept of revelation. We don't know what it is. You hear something that sounds good and you go, ooh, that's revelation. Something that's profound. Ooh, that's some deep revelation right there. I've got to get me some of that. That's good right there. I'm going to Facebook that. I'm going to tweet that. To us, revelation is anything tweetable. If you hear it and it makes you want to tweet it, it's probably revelation. But if that's the case, then you get revelation from Tim Robbins, Bill Gates, Oprah. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is there's a difference between revelation and insight. Just because it's true doesn't mean it's revelation, at least not for you. It might have been revelation to somebody else, but it's not revelation for you until you get it as revelation. But the fact that you said, aha, that sounds good, doesn't mean it hit you as revelation. Let me tell you the difference. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the scripture says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us. And to our children forever. Let's talk about that verse. The secret things belong to the Lord. The first thing you need to understand about Revelation is that God will not tell you everything. There's some stuff that God says, this belongs to me and I'm not telling. This is one of the secret things that belong to the Lord. It's none of your business. There are some questions you can ask God for the rest of your life, and he's never going to answer them. Why? Because it's part of the secret stuff. It doesn't belong to you. It's not chose. It's grown folk stuff. Mind your business. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus' disciples ask him, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not for you to know. There's some stuff that's just not for you to know. It's not your business. It's not to be your focus. And here's the problem in the body of Christ. We get disillusioned when God doesn't tell us something. Well, I'm so confused. What are you confused about? Well, I wish God would explain this to me. We're so busy trying to possess the secret things that we completely neglect the revealed things. The revealed things belong to us, but instead of possessing the revealed things, we're crying about not knowing the secret things. Anytime somebody's crying about something they don't know, there's always ten things that they do know that they refuse to possess. Things that God's already told you, already showed you, already revealed to you, but you forgot all about everything that He revealed to you because you're crying about something that He hasn't revealed to you. The secret things belong to the Lord. Forget it! People ask me questions all the time. I say, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? You're getting your Ph.D. in theology. That don't mean nothing. There's some stuff God don't reveal even if you get your Ph.D. And a lot of things He won't reveal because you got your Ph.D. <laughs> That's tweetable right there. That's revelation. <laughs> The secret things don't belong to us. We spend so much time focusing on what God isn't doing that we miss what He is doing. That's a lesson you've got to learn if you're going to be used by God. You're so busy crying over the one that God isn't saving or hasn't saved that there's ten people that walk right by you that God's ready to save, but you won't say a word to them because you're too disillusioned that God didn't save this one. Fifteen things that He's ready to heal and break you free from, but you're crying about the one thing He's not. He's speaking to you all the time, but you don't hear it because He's not saying what you want to hear Him say. You're focusing on the one thing that you're not getting from God, and you step right over the ten things that He's ready to give you right now. You're focused on the secret things instead of the revealed things. And this is the key. The revealed things belong to us and to our children from now on and forever, but they belong to us in the form of an inheritance. It says, the revealed things belong to us and to our children, meaning that revelation is generational. Revelation is generational. It means that what God revealed to my parents belongs to me by virtue of inheritance. And it means that what God has revealed to me belongs to my children by virtue of inheritance. And it's the same for my spiritual father. When God put me under my spiritual father, I'll never forget, I used to see stuff in his life and go home and pray and ask God for it. And God spoke to me one day and said, stop asking me for it. It's yours by virtue of inheritance. That's why I gave him to you. Everything he has is yours. Everything. When I got that revelation, I started acting different towards him. Remember, I I called him, left a message. He didn't call me back. Next day, I called him again, left a message. He didn't call me back. Next day he called me back, and he was so apologetic. He said, I'm so sorry I haven't gotten to you. I've been so busy. I said, no, 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 no. Don't worry. You're always with me. Everything you have is mine. It's all good. We're not, we're not ever apart. Everything you have belongs to me by virtue of inheritance. So if you didn't call me for a couple of days, it's not a big deal. I have everything that's yours. I possess it. It's my inheritance. I'm not missing anything. When I got that in my head, I stopped getting offended. It's mine by virtue of inheritance. But the thing you need to understand about inheritance is that an inheritance still must be possessed. If you refuse to possess it, you won't have it. Joshua chapter 18, we see this very clearly. You know that Joshua is the book of conquest, the book of Deuteronomy chronicles the 40 years wandering in the wilderness of the children of God, and the book of Deuteronomy really is the book of Moses' sermons as he's entering near the end of his life, and he knows he's not the one that's going to lead the people of God into conquest and into possessing the promised land, but he wants to get them ready for it, and he wants to remind them of everything that God did over those 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He wants to remind them that God brought them out of Egypt. Why? Because Moses is afraid that the people of God are going to come into the promised land and forget about the Lord. That they're going to come into the promised land and think they got themselves there by their own power. And so he has to remind them again and again and again. We see it so clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. To humble you and to test you in order to see what was in your heart, whether or not you would obey his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Which neither you nor your fathers had known. To teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So remember, remember the Lord your God. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. God comes to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 and says, Moses, my servant is dead. Now you get yourself ready because you're going to lead these people to take their inheritance. You will lead these people to possess their inheritance. And he says to Israel, look, I've given you the land. I've given it to you. Now go take it. Everything that God gives you, you must take it by force. You can't sit around passively waiting for it to fall in your lap. You've got to take it you got to wake up and make a decision that I am not going to live outside of the inheritance that the Lord my God has given me. Now the first 17 chapters of Joshua are 17 chapters of conquest. God led them into the conquest of taking the promised land. And God was so invested in making sure they got it that God fought on their behalf. You see in Joshua chapter 5, they have the, the battle at Jericho. Here are these people that were former slaves for hundreds of years. they have never held a sword. they have never held a spear. they have never held a shield. But now they've got to take a city. And they don't know the first thing about taking a city. And God said, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble. Because when people don't know how to enter into conquest, the first experience in conquest, they can get the tar beat out of them. Think about it. They're fighting skilled soldiers. And there's a big wall. They don't know how to take down a wall. They've never held a battering ram. They'll probably just walk up to the wall with a battering ram and get shot down by, by archers. Oh, didn't know how to, needed a shield. And so God knowing, and so God knowing that these people were not prepared for conquest, he says, Joshua, I'm going to make it easy for you. Here's the strategy for the first one. What I want you to do is two things. One, I want you to march, and two, I want you to shout. March around that wall and shout. The first battle was easy. March and shout. The walls came tumbling down after seven days. Real easy, right? God says, okay, I've done, I knocked the first one out for you. Now the second one, you're going to pick up spears and swords. See, the problem with us is when God does it once one way, we think he's going to do it every time that way. Man, we would have had seminars about how to march and how far away from the wall to march, and we would have been selling the garments that the priests were wearing. <laughs> right? As soon as God does something one way among us, we think that's the only way He's going to do it. He does it this way in this city, so everybody's trying to do what that preacher did. Come on, somebody. We're not following Him. We're just trying to reproduce what He did someplace else. Listen, I don't care what God did in somebody else's town, what God did in somebody else's generation, and what God did in somebody else. It ain't going to work for you. You've got to learn to follow Him for yourself. And I don't care what he did with you in the last battle. The next battle could be completely different. You've got to hear what he's saying and how to do it. So 17 chapters of conquest happens. We get here to Joshua chapter 18. And out of the 12 tribes, 7 of them still haven't entered into their inheritance. I mean, out of the 5 that got it, some of them are already asking for more. Some of them are already coming saying, we don't have enough space. We've taken our inheritance, now we want more. Give us this mountain. Give us these people. And Josh says, okay, go take it. Yeah, and they go to war. But there's seven tribes that are still walking around saying, one day, one day we're going to have our inheritance too. And they're comforting each other with those words. One day the Lord's going to release us. I'm not sensing it's time yet. and I'm just not sensing that it's the time when we feel the moving of the Spirit we're going to go. One day... One day we'll step into our destiny. One day we'll discover our gifts. One day we'll stop sitting in the pews watching everyone around us step into their destiny while we just sit back on our blessed assurance singing Kumbaya. One day we're going to wake up and get some conquest in us. One day. One day. Now look at what Joshua says. Joshua chapter 18. Starting at verse 1, now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Verse 2, but there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Verse 3, then Joshua said to the children of Israel, how long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you? How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Past tense. Has given you. You don't have what God has given you. That's what Joshua was saying. Until you enter into conquest, you will never possess what God has already given you. You'll live outside of that which God has already given you. You're you're still waiting for Him to give it to you one day. He gave it to you in the past, but you don't possess it now because you haven't entered into conquest for it. It's time for you to possess your inheritance. Are you hearing me? It's time for you to possess inheritance. Your inheritance, and it's not going to happen automatically. It's not going to fall into your lap. It's not going to manifest from the heavens. It's not going to, somebody's going to lay hands on you and put oil on your head and suddenly you got it. You are going to have to contend for it and make a decision. I will not live outside of my inheritance. And every devil in hell wants to keep you out of it. you got to make a decision. There ain't a devil in hell that can keep me out of what God has given me. Now let me tell you what your inheritance is. It's not some city that you're supposed to go in with swords and spears and gats. (laughs) Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. Your inheritance is revelation. The revealed things. What God wants you to possess is not even your calling. There's people walking in their calling, but not walking in revelation. There's people walking in their ministry, but outside of their inheritance of revelation, not possessing the revelation that God's given them. God wants you to possess the revealed things. Your calling will happen naturally when you begin to possess the revealed things. What am I talking about? I was talking to my spiritual father, and I, I, said, uh, <laughs> I said, I said, I hear what you're saying. He was sharing some things with me. I said, I hear what you're saying, but I just can't get a hold of it. And he said, Benjamin, how long will you neglect to go and take the land that the Lord your God has given you? You've got to possess what I'm saying to you. In other words, the Lord revealed it to him and I, I saw that I get it. I possess everything he has by revelation. What I didn't realize is that I had to contend for it. What I didn't realize was that I had to go home and get in my prayer closet and contend for it and say, I have this. This belongs to me by virtue of inheritance. By virtue of the spirit of sonship, this revelation is mine. And here's how you know it's revelation. When it comes to you as revelation, you know it because you begin to possess it. The revealed things belong to us. If it don't belong to you, it ain't part of the revealed things. You didn't get revelation until you own it. When you possess it, it's more than a pithy comment. It's more than an expression of profundity. It's more than tweetable. Because half the stuff you tweeted and retweeted, you can't tell me today. You don't remember it today. Tweet and retweet sat in a boat. Tweet fell out and who was left? don't get me wrong keep tweeting and keep retweeting especially me because i'm dropping mad knowledge in my twitter but i don't get nearly as much twitter love man i drop and i see folks that had like a thousand retweets and they said something ridiculous A thousand people retweeted this nonsense. I'm dropping revelation fresh from heaven. I get one retweet. And this person retweeted to their five followers. (laughs) Anyway, that was a commercial. Where did them devils come from? Spirit of Distraction came from this vicinity over here. (laughs) Here's the point I'm making. Tweet it, but then go back and own it. When you hear something and you know it was revelation to the person that released it, you grab it, take it into your prayer closet, and pray over it till you own it. Till it becomes yours. Till you begin to believe it. Now here's the problem. The problem is that we have trained ourselves... To make the physical realm the source of truth. We've trained ourselves to depend on what we see in the natural or to, to set our eyes on the things that are seen instead of the things that are unseen. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. See, we allow our experience to refute the Word of God all the time. So John says there in 1 John chapter 2, He who is born of God does not sin. In fact, he cannot sin, for God's seed remains in him. He who is born of God does not sin. In fact, he cannot sin, for God's seed remains in him. Doesn't that sound unbiblical? That sounds unbiblical. John says, if you're born again, you can't sin. It's impossible for you to sin. Everything in me, when I hear that, goes, How does that work? Because I can sin. No, I guarantee it. I can sin. I'm the best sinner you know. So how does John say he was born of God can't sin? You know why I don't believe it? Because I look at my experience and it doesn't bear out in my experience. Because I can sin. And so then I take my experience back to the Word of God and say, John was high on something when he wrote that. I'm just going to move that out of my Bible. Earlier when John said, in chapter 1, when he said, if we say we have no sin, we make him to be a liar and his truth is not in us. Oh yeah, my soul just gets a hold of that one. So that's right. I got sin. I'm just going to receive that. If I say I don't have any sin, I make him to be a liar. And so I just begin to confess in the Spirit, I have sin. Thank you, Lord. I have sin. I just, ooh, I receive it. I got sin. The Bible says your old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with. Your old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with. (laughs) I'm not going to say it. Your old man was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with. Let me tell you something. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, your old man was crucified with Christ. The body of sin was done away with. You died to sin once for all. You died to it. You know why you can still sin? Because you believe you can. My spiritual father asked me, who told you you could still sin? Why do you think that? Who told you that? Well, Everybody told me that. I mean, it's common knowledge. He says, but I'm reading right here from the Word of God. It says you can't sin anymore. When you begin to believe that, that is, when you go into your prayer closet and lay hold of it until God gives it to you as revelation, now it becomes one of the revealed things that belongs to you. And suddenly, as you believe it, you step right over stuff that used to make you stumble. You walk up to, no, I can't do that. God's seed remains in me. I can't do that. It doesn't even bother me anymore. Why? It's, I know. I See, the only reason I was able to do it before because I believed I could. I just, I had faith. Anybody who tells you they struggle with faith is a liar. The Bible says the flesh has been crucified. I have have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But we raise the dead on a daily basis. Live in the name of Jesus. Because I got some sinning to do. Somebody cuts me off on the freeway and we work miracles quick. Flesh, live! What's wrong with you? Your wife say the wrong thing to you? Quickly you raise that flesh from the dead. That's why I love listening to Nephew Tommy. You know who Nephew Tommy is? He does prank calls, but he loves to call church folks. <laughs> And he'll always get deacons, elders, and pastors cussing up a storm. (laughs) And then he tells them it's a prank, and they go, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe the things I said on the radio to millions of people. Your whole church heard it. How do you lay hold of revelation? I'm going to give you just a simple, a simple strategy for laying hold of revelation. Here, it's a simple equation. Faith, apprehending grace, results in revelation. Faith, identifying and apprehending grace, equals revelation. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved, through faith. Grace through faith. You were not saved because you decided to give Jesus a try. I love those altar calls where Jesus just seems to be the loneliest person. Would you please just give him a try? Just turn to Jesus. He's hurting for you. He wants you. Like Jesus is just so lonely. Would somebody just come and be Jesus' friend? Listen, he don't need you. He don't need me. But he wants us and he loves you and he loves me. But don't get it twisted. You're not doing him a favor when you come to him. You're doing yourself a favor because you and I need saving. He doesn't. But the fact of the matter is that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's by grace, not simply by your choice. Now I know we've got this whole Calvinism and Arminianism thing and you know, many of you know that one of my primary desires in life is to eradicate Calvinism from the face of the earth. I am not a Calvinist. However, that doesn't mean I'm an Armenianist. That's just as bad. Matter of fact, it becomes works righteousness because you think you chose God. The Bible says that you were predestined before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That is, when you came to God, it wasn't your idea. It was God's idea, but you still had to choose to come to God. In other words, they're both right. The thing that they're wrong about is excluding the other. Calvin says you have no free will. Arminius says God has no predestination. No. God predestined you and you chose Him. But the only reason you could choose Him is because He gave you the grace to choose Him. And it says you are saved by grace through faith. Meaning that your faith identified the grace of God that saves you and your faith apprehended it. Your faith says, there's grace. I'm going to take it right now. There's grace. Now, this grace through faith formula works not just for salvation but for every arena of the life of the believer. A lot of us think we get saved by grace, but from that point on it's by works. As if we say, thank you for saving me, I got it from here. And that was what got the Galatians in trouble with Paul. You read Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Paul was ticked off when he wrote the book of Galatians. I mean, he told some folks to go to hell in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. He said it twice. I mean, he was, he was ticked off. It's like my, grandma, my, my great aunt sometimes. But uh, he gets to chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you before your very eyes Christ was portrayed as crucified? Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to be per- perfected by the flesh? When he says you begun in the Spirit, he means you began by grace through faith. But then you said, okay, now we're going to do it by our works. The flesh is an abomination to God. Everything is by grace. You know, people have told me, oh, you're so spiritually disciplined. Can I let you in on a little secret? I'm terribly undisciplined, spiritually and otherwise. If I do anything, it's not by the power of my own discipline. God knows that I don't have much of that. They say, but you just fasted 38 days. I'm the worst faster you know. I'm terrible at fasting. Do you know how many times I've started a fast and quit before the day was over? How many times i told my wife, I'm on a 10-day fast, and it lasted about 15 minutes. She saw me eating a cheeseburger an hour later. She's like, what are you doing? I'm going to start it tomorrow. See, I, 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 was, you know, I forgot about this. And there's always these fasting excuses. You know, well, see, I forgot about this lunch appointment I had. with, with, with you know, I forgot I had this. And I don't want to make him feel left out by eating by himself. You know, so I want a fellowship. You know, so we, we got it. You know how many times I've done that? You know, if I've ever been able to fast, you know how it happens? My faith recognizes the grace of God to do it. There's fasting grace, and my faith lays hold of it. I can fast forever when i got the grace. Not forever. We'll eat at some point. There's a grace to fast, and there's a grace to eat. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And right now, I've got the grace to eat. Hallelujah. And I've got the anointment for it. Woo, Thanksgiving was an anointed day. Wednesday night, about 7 p.m., the night before Thanksgiving, the Shekinah Glory entered my home. About 7 p.m., my mom and dad came in carrying a pan with two roasted chickens and a bowl full of collard greens. And then my mom, the glory increased when she started making her famous heart attack cornbread. I call it heart attack cornbread because you can only eat it once a year and live. I mean, she filled the skillet full of corn, and then she put in a pound and a half of butter. I said, I don't want to see any more. I said, Mom, you might as well rub fresh cholesterol right directly into your heart. <laughs> but I ate, I, I, I just received that grace to eat, and I ate like, I just enjoyed Thanksgiving. I just, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But but here's the point I'm making. You know, I remember when I did a 21-day water fast. I remember when the grace for it came, because I can't do a three-day water fast without grace, okay? I remember I was sitting in my room studying, it was one evening, and all of a sudden I felt the grace come. I said, Lord, I think that I think you're telling me to do a 21-day fast. And my faith just grabbed it. And I said, I'm fasting right now. I said it in my heart, but I didn't say it to my wife because I had failed so many times, it got to the point when I would say, Baby, I'm fasting. She'd say, Yeah, right. Please. <laughs> Three days later, she said, Baby, are you fasting? I said, Yeah. She said, How long? I said, 21 days, I think. I think 21. I was afraid to say it. You know the grace kept me that whole time the grace of God traveled with me the grace of God traveled with me 38 days in this last fast the grace of God travels with me but you know what when the grace lifts it's over fasting in the flesh without grace doesn't please God listen fasting doesn't please God at all actually not eating you think that pleases God you walking around hungry and God said I'm so pleased my son is hungry it just pleases me to hear your stomach growling. <laughs> you know, ain't got no strength. Just walking around like that. And God says, I'm pleased. No, He's not pleased by that. Any more than if you were to go out in the forest and start whipping yourself. You know, they used to do that in the Middle Ages. The priests, if they sinned, they'd go out in the woods and beat themselves and beat their backs with whips, you know, to punish themselves for their sins. They used to wear these belts with, with spikes in them and they'd tighten it for every sin and it would, the spikes would go into their side and they'd bleed and it would get infected and that's, that's how they paid the price for their sins. Luther, when he entered into the Augustinian monastery, they gave him a stone room with a hay bed and a little pillow and a little blanket and he thought it was too comfortable so he slept on the stone cold floor in his drawers in the middle of winter. Ruined his health. Ruined his health. But he thought that was spiritual. Let's just kill myself. That's spiritual. Let me just dist- It doesn't please God at all. The only thing that pleases Him is faith. The only thing that pleases God is faith. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith equals the ability to recognize the grace of God and apprehend it. If it's faith for healing, if God's grace comes for healing, your faith says, that's healing grace. I'll take it. If his grace comes for fasting, you say, that's fasting grace. I'll take it. People say, you're such a prayer warrior. No, I'm not. I'm horrible at prayer. I'm terrible. I don't feel like praying. I feel like watching TV. I get on my knees to pray, and I'm, oh, Lord, I've run out of stuff to say to you. Give him a few Shandama ties. Who stole my Hondas? He's coming in a Hyundai's. Mi casa y condo? (laughs) When I run out of those, I say, I guess I'm done, Lord. What's on TV? But when God's grace comes for prayer and my faith recognizes it, and I apprehend that grace, I can pray all day and all night and all day and all night. Why? Because it's by grace. It's by grace through faith, not by works. People say, you do a lot. How can you pastor two churches and write a dissertation? You've got a huge capacity. No, I don't. i got a small capacity. I can barely do anything. Without the grace of God, I couldn't pastor one church, and I definitely couldn't write a stinking dissertation. People say, you're smart. No, I'm not. I'm an idiot. I don't understand half the stuff. If I explain to you how I pass my comprehensive exams... It's all the grace of God. It's all the grace of God. I, don't, I can't do anything in my own power. Listen, you've got to stop being, t- and being intimidated by what you see other people do. No, I can't do anything on my own. I can only do what God graces me to do. And this, li- listen, this is the key. You can do whatever God graces you to do. If God graces you to do one thing and you do two, you're in the flesh. And if God graces you to do ten things and you're doing nine, you're lazy. True faith is simply understanding the grace of God, apprehending it, and doing whatever you're graced to do. If God graces you to fast and you're eating, if God graces you to eat and you're fasting, If God graces you to to pray and you're sleeping, if God graces you to sleep and you're praying, none of it is good. None of it is good. If God graces you to speak and you're silent, and if God graces you to shut up and you're speaking, hello? Hello? But the problem with us is we look at ourselves and say, I don't have that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I wish I could do that. I don't have what he has. I can't do it. Who cares? It's not about you. When your faith identifies the grace of God and grabs it. And you know what? Sometimes grabbing it takes more than a moment. Sometimes you've got to grab it, wrestle it down, hold it down, sit on it, tie it up. Chain yourself to it so that it doesn't get away. Sleep on it. Sometimes you've got to hog tie it. Sometimes you've got you to gotta sew your clothes to it so that it doesn't get away while you're sleeping. In other words, what is apprehended in prayer must be maintained by prayer. You've got to keep it. And the work of faith, the work of prayer is simply fighting the good fight of faith. Is simply making sure, and this is the thing, you don't fight the devil, you're fighting for faith. You're not fighting for victory, victory was already given to you in the cross of Jesus Christ. You're fighting to believe for that victory. You're fighting for the faith that apprehends the grace of that victory. You're fighting to be able to identify and apprehend the grace of God and when you can see it and say, that's God's grace. I told you about when the Lord healed my tooth, I felt his presence in my face. I said, Lord, that feels like healing. I receive it. Instantly, my tooth was healed. I told you that story. I, I, you know, so often we miss what God's doing because we don't identify the grace of God. We, and we think we're trying to earn it. Well, if I pray three hours, the Lord will heal me. Maybe if I pray for five hours, and we're thinking in the natural, and we're thinking in the flesh, and it never comes to us as revelation because revelation starts with faith, progresses through grace, and it ends up in revelation... And when it becomes revelation, now you possess it. Now it's yours. It's yours. I got it. I got it. Now I'm walking in the truth that my flesh has been crucified with Christ. Now I'm walking in the truth that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now I'm walking in the truth that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I'm walking in it as revelation. I'm not simply putting it on my Facebook wall and tweeting it. But I'm tweeting it because I'm owning it. And if I make a decision to tweet only what I own. Or to go back and own what I tweet. Maybe I'll tweet it as an act of commitment. That I'm committing to owning this. It's one of the revealed things. It belongs to me. And because it belongs to me. It belongs to my children, but all there needs to be is one weak link in the generations. My grandfather owned it, my father owned it, my great grandfather owned it, but because I choose not to own it, neither will my children. Revelation is generational, it's generational. That means that you look at the generation before you, and I'm talking in the spirit, not just in the natural. I'm not talking about your natural line. I'm talking about your spiritual lineage. say, what do they have? I grew up in a church where the pastor was a powerful evangelist in mighty signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And the Lord spoke to me one day and said, go back and get your inheritance. And I went back to that house, and I asked the pastor of that house. I said, lay hands on me and give me the inheritance of this house. And ever since that day, it's been a struggle to possess it in the spirit. I grew up there. That's a part of who I am. I have the inheritance of that house. I receive it. I'm going to see the same kinds of signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And you know what? It was when I began to possess it that I began to see signs and wonders begin to manifest. I begin to see healings and miracles begin to manifest. Why? Because I am an heir. I am an heir. And when you recognize that you don't have to win every victory for yourself, you don't have to get every miracle for yourself, you don't have to get every revelation for yourself, you simply have to make a decision to possess what God has given you. To possess it. To own it. To recognize it as grace. And to apprehend it with your faith. And then continue to walk in faith so that you can continue to hold it. Until you possess it. And now, it's not just a revelation that you heard or saw, but it's revelation to you. And when it's revelation to you, you'll find yourself preaching it to others and you even forgot that you got it from somebody else. And you know what? You don't need to remember that you got it from somebody else because it's revelation to you. Some folks will just get up and preach something they heard, they didn't get it by revelation. It didn't become their revelation. They're just preaching somebody else's sermon. But there are others who own it by revelation. God gives it to them by revelation. And when they stand up and preach it, it's just as authentic as it was the first time the other person preached it because they own it. And what you own, you can give. What you possess in the Spirit, you can give. And you don't even need to quote anybody. It's yours. You can give it. you hearing me today. (laughs) Somebody told me the key to revelation is never revealing your sources. (laughs) No, the key to revelation is faith and grace. Let's pray. Father, I speak your blessing over this house today. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I bless your people. Lord, I lift Your people up to a new place of confidence in You. Because many of Your people here today have lived under an inferiority complex. They just feel like they're less than. I look around at other believers and they seem further ahead than me. They seem more anointed than me. They seem more powerful than me. They know more Scripture than me. they got a greater ministry than me. And I just seem to be so far behind. Some of you here have been living under the lie that you should be further ahead than you are now. Man, if only... I had done this. I'd be so much further ahead than I am now. And the Lord wants you to take your eyes off yourself. All of that self-condemnation comes from the devil and not from God. The fact of the matter is, you're just as qualified as anyone else to receive the grace of God. And the only thing that qualifies us to receive the grace of God is faith. Faith. Not education, not experience. Not skill, Not ability not talents, not possessions, not money, not status, not social standing. The fact of the matter is that the only thing that means anything in this life to God is faith and grace. And His grace is abundant. Scripture says of the fullness of His grace we have all received one blessing after another. His grace is abundant. He's got abundant grace, but the problem is we've got minuscule faith. Because our faith is so small, we can't seem to apprehend His abundant grace. But today He's coming to give you abundant faith. And Some of you in this place have been crying out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And the Lord says to you today, I'm coming to help your unbelief. I'm coming to give you faith. I'm coming to increase your faith. And so I speak blessing over your faith today in the name of Jesus. I bless you with the faith to identify and apprehend the grace of Jesus Christ. I bless you with it right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say every barrier to your faith has been removed. And I say you're free to believe. I say you're free to run. I say you're free to run. You're free to run. And I just see you running. I see you running in an open field. You're free. There's no restrictions. There's no hindrances. Some of you feel like you've been restricted and tied up in a prison and locked away. I declare freedom to you right now in the name of Jesus. I say those prison doors have opened and you've come out. And now you are basking in the sunshine of His love. And the Scripture says, To you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in His wings. And you will go forth like stall-fed calves. And I declare today in the name of Jesus that the Son of Righteousness has arisen to you today. And He's arisen with healing in His wings. And you're going to go forth in freedom today in the name of Jesus. You're going to go forth in joy today in the name of Jesus. And you're going to go forth in power today in the name of Jesus. I speak blessing. I speak encouragement. And I release you into the flow of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes in power, in righteousness, in peace, and in joy in the Holy Spirit. And I just release you into the flow of the kingdom. You will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. I release you today in the joy of the Lord. And in the peace of God. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 God bless you.